It's another bottle down, and uh, we talk about wine and the wine industry for an hour every week, and it's a true honor to be on this station, KOOP, and uh, I'll post some stuff about uh, what we're talking about on the co-op blog, so you can always follow along at koop.org. It's my honor to welcome to the co-op studios and to the show Grace uh, uh, Grayson Davies, who is winemaker and uh, part of the family that owns RK Winery in Northern Texas. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, um... Let's start off by by talking a little bit about your property. Your family started first the vineyard and then moved into the winemaking. So tell us a little bit about the where the vineyard is. Yeah, so when we first started, so that was back in 99, it's actually, uh, so we are family owned and operated. And I was uh, one of three three sons that my parents had. And they picked us up from summer camp back in 98, and they said, we're going to start a vineyard and winery. Completely out of the blue. Out of the blue. <laughs> oh, yeah. We were not in the industry whatsoever. Uh, my parents were small business owners, but uh, they were wine lovers, and they decided that they wanted to start growing grapes and making wine commercially. And so we had to find a property that was close enough to where, where we lived at the time, which was Dallas area. And so we found a small community called uh, St. Joe, about an hour hour and a half north of northwest of Dallas and it turned out to be a fantastic area to grow grapes topography is beautiful uh, really good uh, climactic conditions no hail things like that good good soil for growing grapes and uh, now we have about a 10 acre vineyard out there then and we're slowly growing over time wow and we're gonna talk about all those things that make the place special uh, did they did, did they just get lucky in choosing this this location or did they do quite a bit of research into you know is it indeed the soil uh, composition that that's good for grapes and and all of that I mean there weren't you said that there was a community, but were there wineries at that time? So when we were looking for a property, this was actually only about the second property that we happened to look at. So we did get pretty lucky. Uh, now, when we were searching for a property, there was a couple conditions that we had to have. It had there had to be groundwater, so we had to, you know to be able to irrigate the vines. So uh, if you go south of Dallas, there isn't a lot of... So there's not, there's not enough natural rainfall to, to where the, the grapes... I mean, yeah. most grapes need, most vines need around 20, 20 to 25 inches of rainfall a year, and you have a lot less than that. So we get... Um, it, it varies quite a bit, our rainfall. The last few years, it's actually rained a lot, and we've had to irrigate very little. Right, all at the wrong times, though, right? Yeah, or exactly. <laughs> so it rains during the times of year that you don't want it to rain. So our average rainfall is in the low to mid-20s, which is actually very similar to some of the really well-known grape-growing regions throughout the world. The only difference is a lot of our rain happens during the growing season, so we have a lot of disease issues, a lot of uh, pressures from fungal issues. So, uh, But when it is very hot outside and dry in August, that's, that'll be the one month sometimes where it doesn't rain very much at all, you know, you'll have to irrigate. Uh, most years, we're not having to irrigate all the time, but it may be a couple of weeks out of the year, that type of thing. So, you know, w when we found that property, there was, uh, there was well water in the area, which was really nice once you go north of Dallas. And the soil type changes. The whole DFW area has a real black clay soil that's called, uh, we like to call it black gumbo clay. That's what it's <laughs> called. And so once you go further north, you start getting into that sandy loam, you know, grapes, they want to have well-drained soils. Uh, don't want to have wet feet where it rains and then it just the soil stays s soggy right. for days on end. So 
the real interesting thing about the property that we had or that we found was we showed up there and the lady who owned the property said, there's one condition. Please do not remove the old table grape vineyard that's on the property. So there was actually an old abandoned table grape that they had planted back in the 70s and only grew grapes on it for just about four years before they realized it was just more than a hobby. You know, it's a career. And they abandoned it. Now, there was a romantic thing with winemaking and grape growing. You know, there's a certain romance to it. And so her and her fiancé at the time had that, that romantic, you know, thing about growing grapes. But they realized that it just wasn't their thing, but she never got rid of it. It was just abandoned, had uh, brambles, oak trees growing in it. And so we found the property. We were just like, whoa, there, so there's some trellising that we can actually use here. Uh, we weren't going to keep the table grapes. So we told her, we said, well, to be honest with you, we're planning on planting a bigger vineyard. And so uh, it ended up working out really well. Oh, it's so. an amazing story. So, I mean, and, and they were okay with that. They just wanted to keep it as a vineyard. She just really wanted us to be able, she didn't want to let go of that. Right. You know, she wanted to sell the property, but she just didn't want to let go of that vineyard. So we told her that we, we were actually going to keep the vineyard. We pull out those vines and planted vinifera. And going back to your original question of, you know, were, the, were there other uh, vineyards in the area? You know, when we started uh, back in 99, there were less than 100 wineries in Texas and even less vineyards. Uh, and so the uh, other than that table grape vineyard, where were the first ones in that area, which is kind of where the name RK comes from. The reason mm-hmm. why we chose the name RK, it's a Greek word and it means in the beginning the leader or the origin and it has its uh its roots and you know a- archaic or archangel the first the right. leader and so we thought that was very appropriate for what we were doing and we, sh- we should say that it's spelled a uh, a-r-c-h-e with an accent um yes. and, and and that 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 is pronounced rk and folks if they want to follow along uh, on your website is it um rkwines.com i believe that's correct yeah so there's um it's a wonderful website there's good information on the wines and you can follow along as we're as we're having this conversation so so kind of a special condition there well-drained soils uh and and your family your parents uh discovered this area um now there's there's other wineries that have moved in can you tell us a little bit about the the grape growing community there now yeah yeah sure so you know, north of Dallas, once you start getting into really far north Texas, there there are a handful of vineyard and wineries in that area. But specifically where we are, which is just off of Highway 82, um, there are now there are now three within a very small distance from each other. There's RK, there's Blue Ostrich, there's 4R Vineyard and Winery, which is relatively new. Um, and, you know, it's actually how I met my fiance is her family is the uh, owners of Blue Ostrich Vineyard and Winery, and my fiance uh, Presley is the vineyard manager of there. So that's how that's how we met. It's a wonderful story, and we're, and we're gonna we're gonna bring Presley in uh, towards the end of the show. Um, and so so a, a community that's not you know vibrant, and uh, there's love being sparked as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, great. Bring us back to that when you so the vineyard was planted or the the property was purchased in '98, right? Your your parents decided, hey, we really want to do this. Uh, less than a hundred wineries in the state of Texas at the moment at that at that time. Uh, you had a number of years where you were just growing grapes, right, and and not actually making wine. What was so you were selling them to other uh, other wineries? Yeah, so you know, there's a couple different ways that you can start. 
Um, you know, you can get into the, into the industry. You can just immediately open up a winery um, and then a vineyard, or you can just grow grapes, or you can just have a winery, any combination. So what we felt that was best for us, because we still lived in Dallas at the time, um, so we were not able to make this a 100% um, you know, everyday thing. It was more of a weekend thing. Eventually we knew it was going to be, this was going to be what the family was going to, to end up doing. So at the time what we did was we pulled out those old table grapes and we planted vinifera varieties. Um, and that's the species of wine grapes that yes. coming from from Europe. And uh, we were having the conversation before the show as as to uh, when you take these European Vitis vinifera, you have to plant them on American rootstock, right? And you you did quite a bit of research as to which rootstock was appropriate. Yeah. So when we first planted, um, we had what we like to call a library row. So we planted a handful of namesteaks. We planted some Cabernet, some Syrah. Um, a little more Vedra, uh, more Merlot, and then we had a library row, which was, okay, we had an idea, okay, it's hot here, obviously, it's hot right. anywhere from Austin to North Texas, it gets hot. It's, okay, hot. it's, so, hot. it's hot out there right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, uh, okay, so we wanted to stick with primarily French varietals, so what are the best French varietals? Well, the, for Texas, at least, Um as you go uh, further south in France, you start hitting the Rhone region. That's going to be the hottest grape growing region. So in our library row, we planted every, every handful of vines we planted as a different Rhone variety. And then with those Rhone varieties, what we did was we plant the, planted them on different rootstocks. So there is the scion, which is the top of the plant, which is the actual variety. And then you have the rootstock. Um, now, the vinifera or the European or grape species are very... Um, very compatible with the North American species. So you're able to get the growth and the root rooting characteristics of the rootstock you use. Mm-hmm. So depending on what your soil type is and how much it rains, drought conditions, you can use different rootstocks to give different growth and yield characteristics. So we did that and we eventually have found a rootstock that works extremely well where, where we are. And now all of our current plantings and future plantings are done on this rootstock that we researched for our specific area. And that, that was an issue back when we first planted was there was not a lot of education about what we should be doing here. Right. Yeah. So you had uh, some growers saying, well, you know what, this is what they do in California. And it's not intuitively obvious, but you know what, we shouldn't necessarily be doing the same things because this is a much different growing area. Right. So we had to kind of figure it out as we went. And as I talk with winemakers all around the state, that is a huge... Uh, a limiting factor that you know you go and you study from one of the one of the more famous winemaking schools and they're teaching how to grow grapes and make wine in California whereas there's a whole other host of issues that we that we deal with here and I guess at the time nowadays the um, you know the, the the viticulture and enology extension uh, is is a little bit more developed right and and there are resources for wineries and vineyards that maybe didn't exist at that time yeah the the difference between now and you know 15 17 years ago it's tremendous the state actually offers a lot of uh, programs they offer they have viticulturists um, who will go out to have certain areas uh, in Texas and you can call them if you're having issues in your vineyard and you can get people and you can get free advice suggestions if you're new uh, there's so much information now I mean right. it's completely different and, and that's probably why we're seeing such a bloom 
and the, the vast growth in the industry is now there's so many resources, there's education being provided. I mean, uh, most of uh, Texas Tech has a, has a great program, but now you have Grayson County Community College. Uh, no relation to myself. Right, but, right. Uh, it, uh, they have a great program as well. Uh, and there's so many resources now for, uh, for potential growers and, and active growers. Right. And, and that is part of the support community that is making the industry so much better by leaps and bounds. Uh, do you see, so is that maybe one of the uh, essences as to how the industry is improving uh, in these days? I mean, you have the, your support community. Uh, and as the industry just improves, there's also more pressure to, to produce really high quality wine, right? Exactly. So when uh, when we first started, there wasn't a lot of information sharing. Uh, right. One grower, one winemaker was not communicating with their neighbors to let them know, hey, uh, look at what we're doing here. This is working really well, or this isn't working well. So everyone, for the longest time, was just kind of trying to figure it out on their own. Right. And so there wasn't a growth in the industry, uh, and that's where the stigma of you know, Texas wine came from was the fact that there, the proper things weren't being done. Um, so there was a lack of, of quality, um, because there was a lack of education. And so now it's so different now because now we have, we're starting to see the niches. We're starting to see that certain areas of the state are producing certain varieties very well. We're learning, uh, certain winemaking, uh, methods that work really well with Texas fruit. Um, I mean, you can make great wine out of, you know, out of state, uh, fruit that it might cost a lot, but it's super high quality. Uh, but that's not the same as taking the fruit from Texas and trying to use a different, uh, different method, different methods in making it. Um, so as, as the, uh, as we progress, the quality is really starting to increase. So is that what you say to somebody who says you can't produce good wine in Texas because it's too hot? Uh, your your response to that would be I would say you're growing then if you're not getting good fruit and you can't make get good fruit it's because you're growing the wrong things right uh, perhaps and perhaps you're growing it the wrong way or, right and and all of the variables that go into growing grapes uh, you know as you mentioned rootstock and uh, and you know vine density and water and you know making sure the disease pressure is 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 uh, you know you're controlling that um, I mean that can make all the difference right. Yeah, so it's uh, where we are particular, particularly. It, it you know we, we get about twenty two to twenty six inches of rain a year. You know half of that happens during the off season. Half of that happens during the growing season. So if we're growing certain varieties that are very susceptible to certain fungal issues, well, that means it's going to be a lot more difficult uh, to grow certain things. Um, the heat, you know, the last really hot summer we had was probably back in. Uh, 2011, 2012, where it, we kind of broke all the records for you know, consecutive days over 100. You know, we had certain varieties that we were growing at the time that once it hits about 100 degrees, they shut down. They stopped focusing on ripening their fruit or growing. Um, but then you have a variety like Syrah. Syrah is our biggest planting. And it'll be 110 degrees outside, and the leaves are still following the, scene, uh, the sun uh, throughout the day. They like the heat. So, you know, if, if there's a grower and they're trying to grow something, a, a very cool weathered grape, um, you know, maybe some, some German varieties or just some, uh, Northern French varieties or, you know, and they're trying to do that here in Texas, their quality is just not going to be where it should be because they're just not growing the right things. So, right. 
Yeah. So current day, what 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 are you? Syrah is your largest planting, and then what else do you have in your estate vineyard? So we're heavy on the Rhones. Okay. So that would be Syrah, and then uh, Roussan as well, and then smaller plantings of uh, Viognier, uh, Marsan, uh, Morvedre, Grenache, Carignan, and then our and then um, our third largest planting is actually of Chardonnay. Which so I've just told you why you shouldn't be growing cool weather grapes. <laughs> I was going to call you out on this, and Chardonnay is one of the classic cooler weather grapes, right? Yeah. So <laughs> there's there's always a uh, wine does weird exception. Things. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. So okay. So. Chardonnay is a cool weather grape. It has its issues. It starts budding out extremely early. In fact, this year it started growing at the end of February, which is crazy because once the vines start growing, if it freezes, all of a sudden you've lost most of your yields for that that year. Right. So you mean coming out of dormancy when you start seeing the buds and the shoot starts coming out, that happens super early. Exactly. And that fruit has already been developed. The clusters, the the fruit hasn't been developed, but the, the fruiting structures, the flowering uh, structures are developed already. So if they get damaged at the beginning of the year, it won't produce, produce, uh, you know, it won't be able to heal that and you won't get that fruit. Right. So, and it's also very susceptible to some mildews and some other, uh, issues that come along with the, the rain during the growing season and the heat, you know, if it's, uh, we have our trellising, our rows going a certain orientation east to west. So we have some, some canopy, um, shading on our fruit, on our white varieties, so we don't have to worry about sunburn. Because again, Chardonnay, it's cool weathered grape, so it's very hot here. Right, the sunlight can be very intense, so you just have to really know how to grow it well. Um, but if if another grower, and, and you know, another reason why we do it well is I think we found a, we have a, a perfect site for it. Our site selection, our soil, our rootstock we use, just it pairs really well with it. But if a if a new a uh, new grower comes and says, should I grow Chardonnay? Because I hear you do it really well. I am going to try to convince them that might not be the best idea. Um, I would hate to, to uh, convince them to plant a whole bunch of it and then them not get a crop off of it. So, um, but I'll continue to say you, we should be growing the correct things. In right, Texas. right. And that correct thing might be, you know, the, the, the variables might come in alignment to, to actually have these cooler weather grapes. And I know there's a few other winemakers who are really uh, in the Chardonnay camp. Uh, Sergio Quadra mm-hmm. uh, is one from Fall Creek. And um, and right. But the, the, the situation has to be perfect when you have uh, Chardonnay done well versus when Chardonnay is done poorly. Um, what is that flavor? I mean, when you do get a crop, what, 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 how do you notice like these Chardonnays that may, might be less successful uh, as far as flavor goes? So the interesting thing about Chardonnay, it's a wine that winemakers, I think across the board, will agree they like to make. Um, it's considered to be a relatively neutral or a chameleon of a grape. So what that means is the characteristics of Chardonnay completely change depending on how it's grown what the winemaker does to it, much more so than most other varieties. Um, it, that's also why it does so well uh, in contact with oak. Uh, it tends to accept the best, the most delicate uh, characteristics of whatever oak you're using with it. So when Chardonnay is not going to be, is not done well, let's say, uh, at, in, the, in the vineyard, uh, well, that could mean anything from, well, you couldn't get a good crop load off of it. Maybe you had disease pressure. Uh, maybe you had to pull that the Chardonnay off the vine a little too early. So your alcohol might be a little less, um, you know, here in Texas, an issue that we have across the board is very high pH, low acidity. 
All right, so we have to correct that acidity as a winemaker. Tell me, tell me why that's important. Uh, and and this we 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 don't want to go too far into yeah, the yeah. We'll get into thing, the chemistry but, too much. But, but but that that is something that you know, folks just enjoying a glass of wine aren't going to be measuring the pH. But uh, but why is that that important? And maybe what problems can it lead to if you don't do it right? And that might give us insight into what maybe was going on in the early days of Texas wine. So pH affects the chemistry across the board. It's probably the most important factor when dealing with just the chemistry of the wine itself because uh, pH, it will affect the color, the aroma, the taste, the stability of the wine, how long it'll, it'll last, the microbial stability. Um, will things start growing into it? Now, there's nothing that can grow in wine that can hurt you or I. It can just make it smell and taste awful. Right. Um, so, but we're talking uh, color, you know, how, how quickly it'll brown, how quickly it'll oxidize. Um, certain chemicals in the wine are in different formulations depending on the pH as well. So if our pHs are extremely high here in Texas, which they are, um, that means they need to be corrected. They need to be lowered. Um, so pH and acidity are not always directly related. Okay, what that means is if the if acidity in the form of tartaric acid, which is grape acid, is not added in the proper in the proper amount or at the proper time during winemaking, then it can lead to a wine that is very tart. Um, and so that's when you get into old Texas wines, mm-hmm. where you had winemakers trying to correct improperly for their pH and creating a very tart wine. Well, the only way to balance out that tartness is to add sugar. So now that's where you get the stigma of sweet wines. Uh, People assuming that Texas wines are sweet wines. Now, thankfully, we're getting over that stigma because some really, really good wines are being made across the board, across the state in Texas now. But that is going to be one of the biggest issues uh, in you know winemaking in Texas 15 years ago. It's just a lot of sweet wines. It's because it takes a knowledgeable winemaker who understands the chemistry and understands why certain things are happening in the vineyard and in the uh, in the winery to create a wine that's well balanced. Do you know of any uh, particular vineyard sites that might not have to naturally correct that uh, that acidity issue? Or, you know, as the grapes ripen, are there folks trying to harvest earlier or, you know, to kind of in, in you know, when you use the word correction, it's a little bit of a, you know, it has that stigma that you're adding yeah. something maybe unnatural. But talk to that. I mean, it's so... The pH of the wine, the reason why it's high in Texas, which is probably, which is a good question, is that uh, our nighttime temperatures are really high. That's going to be the number one issue that affects pH. So when it's really warm at night, let's say it's 85 degrees, which that happens quite often. Sure. It's 12 o'clock and it's 80, 80, 85 degrees. That vine is starting to metabolize malic acid. Malic acid is also another grape that's found in, in the wine. And uh, so there's less malic acid. So it's actually used up some of the acid that would be in there uh, when it was harvested, but it's not there anymore. So the pH goes up. So nighttime temperatures are why our pHs are high. Well, across the board in Texas, I mean, it's, uh, pH is going to be an issue almost anywhere. Uh, any of the grape growing regions, the American viticulture areas, the AVAs within Texas are going to be dealing with high pHs. I mean, that's from the Texas high plains where 80% of the fruit that's grown in Texas is grown in, you know, far west Texas. Um, well, and, well, the fruit out there is going to be um, really high in pH, just like it is where we are. Um, so, 
And we yeah, should Napa, say, I would say Napa Valley. There you go. Na- or pa- <laughs> Paso Robles. You know, uh, my, I have a brother's winemaker out there and, and, uh, he, he showed me some of their, uh, their sheets of numbers that they ran on their last harvest and right. the sugar levels were perfect, meaning the fruit was extremely ripe and the pHs were spot on. And I just, man, I was like, man, I, I wish I had fruit <laughs> like that. Yeah. Well, you know, it might, it might uh, change as the vines come a little bit more into maturity. I mean, your vineyard now, we don't know what older vines in Texas might bring us. You're right. right? And so there, for instance, uh, the first year we get we harvested on our Chardonnay, uh, the pH. I'm just going to throw out a number here. It was about 4.0, which is very high. You want your pHs more to be like 3.6. Well, the the next year, um, well, last year, I'm sorry, last year, our pH at harvest was about 3.85. So it's going down. It's on a downward trend, and a lot of that has to do about uh, just the temperature for that year. Also, just how you um, how you're growing the vines, the crop load that you have will affect pH. And, you know, having a wine that's a little higher in pH is just kind of a characteristic of Texas fruit. I mean, we're never going to have any uh, uh, wines in Texas that have a pH of like 3.2, which you'll have in really cool areas. That's just not the varietal characteristic of Texas. Now, I will say this, that there are some other varieties that are not grown very much, some Mediterranean varieties, some Greek varieties, um, that if they were uh, that's when we'd start getting into, you know, to really be growing the correct varieties here in Texas. And, and but growers are starting to, to dabble in those in those things. Right. If and if any uh, of my listeners out there who've listened uh, regularly to the show, you'll know that uh, Assyrtiko, which is one of my favorite great Greek uh, grape varieties, is a super low pH grape variety and has lusciousness and good mouthfeel and body. And it's, I'm seeing it more and more all over the world. So are people bringing in those kinds of varieties? Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, uh, I keep, I'll bring up West Texas again, the Texas high plains, because that's where most of the grapes in Texas are growing. And you're starting to see these varieties that have not really been known to the Texas marketplace as a consumer. Um, so it'll be a while, you know, the, the, um, as the industry uh, matures, that's not just at the growing and the winemaking aspect, but also the consumer aspect. So if consumers are starting to see these other varieties and they start getting interested in trying these varieties that are, you know, proper for Texas, let's just say that, then um, that means that more growers will start to grow them because there's more of a demand for that. Um, so it, it's evolving over time. It's getting better. You know, we're, we're having less vineyards plant cooler weathered grapes and, and more of them going to the, to the proper varieties. Yeah. Um, Grayson, we need to take a short break. Um, and if you're just tuning in, my name is Mark Grayshep. This is another bottle down on co-op radio. And we're speaking with Grayson Davies, who is winemaker. Uh, clearly, you know a lot about the science and we're going to get more into your background. Uh, Grayson Davies is uh, part of the family that owns and he makes the wines for RK Winery up in North Texas. So we're going to take a short break, but first uh, support for co-op comes from Lincoln Pin Gallery, presenting a retrospective of photographer Jim Doherty's work. The show runs through June 25th. Gallery hours are 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Link and Pin is located at 2235 East 6th Street, Suite 102. More information available at linkpinart.com. We will be right back with more information and talk about wine with Grayson Davies. Support for this program comes from you. Become a co-op radio supporter today. It's easy. 
Just go to koop.org and click on the Donate Now button and make your gift of support. We can't do it without you. And we are back. Thank you so much for everybody listening out there. I'm really enjoying this conversation. We're talking, we have live in the studio, Grayson Davies, who is winemaker of RK Winery in northern Texas. And, you know, we're talking about what the industry and all of the improvements that have been kind of going on over the past years, all the variables of making wine and growing grapes in Texas. Uh, Grayson, you sound pretty smart on this topic. You, you studied wine formally, right? I did. Uh, quick thing, I always like to tell people, hey, when it comes to wine, as long as you, th- you sound like you know what you're talking about, <laughs> you know, you'll, be, you'll be good. No, but I, I did get my uh, degree in viticulture and enology from Texas Tech. And that is, and, and for folks who don't know that, for, that route of study, viticulture is the, is the science of growing grapes and enology is the science of making wine. Yeah, so it was uh, back in 2008. I actually, I transferred into tech because I knew they were starting up that program. Um, at the time, we started up our winery in 2007. My dad was the winemaker, and we were just uh, we were still selling most of our grapes at that at that time, just holding on to a few to make a little bit of wine. You know, start the start the winery basically. And then in uh, December of 11 is when I graduated. However, I did become the winemaker in 2010, so I was doing it long distance. I was uh, (laughs) driving back and forth uh, every weekend from Lubbock to where we are in St. Joe's, so about a five-hour drive. And then the next year for 2011, I started flying back because I got sick of driving that much. And then, uh, so 2012 was the first vintage. I was actually here full-time, which was really, it was really nice. And, And, you know, the reason why I went to tech prior to that, the reason why I didn't just go straight to tech is I really didn't know what I what I wanted to do, you know. You have a you have a family business, and you're being kind of pointed in a certain direction. And at that time, I was like, man, I want to do anything else but that. <laughs> I spent so many weekends as a kid, you know, working in the vineyard while my friends were out playing. I was like, I'm gonna work in a cubicle. <laughs> but uh, I I grew up. You know, yeah. I matured and realized, man, this is an awesome, awesome opportunity. And I actually enjoy it. I really do. Really enjoy working out in the vines. I enjoy the winemaking aspect of it. And I like wine. So um, I decided, you know what, I need to get some official um, official education. And so we were told uh, by a professor that, hey, here you're, you know, transferring into a university. Let me tell you about tech. We're starting up that program, which was a great thing. I mean, it, it took a long time for Texas to get a, you know, four-year university to start offering those programs. But I was uh, one of the first students to get that that degree from tech. And it was, a, it was a great thing. Got a lot of really good education. You know, people ask me, what is viticulture and enology? Well, I pretty much got a degree in horticulture, so I know how to grow things with some specializations in, in viticulture and then took a lot of chemistry and biology right. for, for the winemaking. Now, what was going on as they were launching this program? Remember what we were talking about earlier in the show as far as a lot of the academics were slanted towards, you know, growing grapes in California, which is where a lot of the research was happening. Were there professors trying to, you know, there really dig into, hey, what do we need to know here in Texas? Yeah, so my viticulture professor was Dr. Ed Hellman. And he was actually, he was involved in viticulture for quite a while. And he was getting, he was involved in Texas viticulture too. So it was a breath of fresh air, you know, because I was taking these viticulture classes. And there was, it, it was nice because it wasn't all just, hey, 
this is what the Viticulture 101 book says that was made in at UC da- that that is provided at UC Davis in California. It was um, here's some grape growing um, in warm warm climates. This is where we are in Texas. This is the issues we're going to have to deal with. So I got a really good education. I was really really pleased with with uh, with that. And then with the winemaking, um, had an awesome professor who had worked all over the all over the uh, the world actually, um, named Brent Trella, and uh, you know he was great. And then I mentioned earlier, but my brother's a winemaker in California, and he he's older than I was. So he was already doing his thing and starting his career before we started the winery. His name is Patrick. And, uh, and where so does he work in California? He is actually a, an assistant winemaker at uh, La Venture in uh, Paso Robles. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's a um, that's a, a pretty pretty big name uh, place that are, that are making really crazy wines. Do you, do you ever kind of chat with him as far as uh, yeah, winemaking? The, the reason why I brought him up is he's my personal wine consultant. Yeah, he, <laughs> he, uh, I, well, it's I, a family business, right? It's family business, and he is involved with RK. And you know, he grew up um, in the vineyard, you know, at RK as well. And anytime we have any issues, anytime I have any questions, I have any ideas, I'm thinking about something, he's the first person I call. He tells me what he's done, what he's doing. And that really helps because the cool thing about Paso is they're growing this some very similar varieties that we are in North Texas. They're really heavy on the Rhone varietals. So um, it's uh, get a lot of good information from them. Yeah, absolutely. They're making wonderful Syrah there and, and really big, massive wines. Um, but, but again, you know, you can't make the wines like they're making in Paso because like you said, the conditions are totally different. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I can get some ideas, but you know, what they do in the winemaking aspect, I cannot do in Texas because our, the chemistry of the wines are different. So I can get some ideas, but I can't say, okay, so this is what you do. Okay. I'm going to do that because the wines aren't going to be the same, uh, you just can't do that. Yeah. Did you, do you taste a lot of wines from around the world? I was like, and, and when you were growing up, you said that your parents were wine lovers. Did they have, were they collectors of a certain, you know, style of wine or? You know, I really enjoy um, whenever I go anywhere to, tr- to go to wineries and to try different wines. I, I, I love doing that. You know, some people are in, are in certain industries and the last thing they want to do is when they go on vacation do things involved with that industry. But anytime I go anywhere, it's, hey, let's, I want to stop at some, uh, some tasting rooms. Let's go to some wineries. I want to try some wines. I want to see what they're doing here. You know, I went to, I was in Arizona, I went to S- Sedona a couple months ago, tried some great wines there. It was awesome. You know, the fact that I was able to go out to Arizona and try some really good wines anywhere. I, it seems like anywhere you go now, you can try some very unique, interesting wines which is very cool. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, wine is both a, a hobby still, a profession and a, and a passion. And, and it links with the culture of a place, which is, which is what really attracted me at the very beginning. Um, so, so, you know, if we go into the wineries, how did, you know, lead us through what your family was doing when they said, okay, we've got a vineyard now. Uh, you know, you went to school, did they go through this process of, you know, putting up this fancy new winery? Is it still relatively rustic? Uh, give a, paint us a picture of the winery. So when we first started growing grapes, we did that until 07. And at that time... And you were we selling just, them to other, other wineries. Uh, yeah, we're selling them to other wineries. And then we um, built a garage, pretty much. Because, you know, for things you put in garages. Very large building, just a metal structure. <laughs> right. And then it was, hey, you know what? 
we need to start making some wine. So we enclosed part of that and we had a tiny micro winery with a tiny little tasting room. Started selling some wine. And then, let me see, I went off to college and my parents sold their house in Plano, moved up there full time. Wow. Uh, th- that's when they started the winery because then they had the ability to actually be there and a tasting room and everything like that. And then uh, two years later, uh, we had a massive yield on a lot of our varieties. And we said, hey, we need to stop selling our grapes and just go into this thing full on. And so we took the rest of that garage, we enclosed it all up, um, AC'd it, and okay, now we have our winery. Uh, tasting room is still really tiny. And, um, and then another, um, another year, a uh, couple years later, mm-hmm. uh, we built a new tasting room. So now we have a much larger tasting room. So our, our winery was able to expand, but our winery, it's what I like to call a very functional winery. <laughs> so when you, uh, when you come and do a tour or you come out to the tasting room, uh, you can see the tasting room and it's beautiful. But the, uh, the winery is just kind of a, you know, you can go back there, but it's not, it's not, you know, it's not pristine. It's not a, a line of beautiful uh, uh, barrels and stainless steel tanks. It's, right. uh, we, had, we have to cram a lot of uh, uh, tanks. Uh, they're shaped very peculiar, peculiar <laughs> ways to get them to fit in there. We use a, a, a tank system called Flex Tank. Uh, allows the wine to age and mature like a, like a neutral oak barrel. Um, and then we use staves. We also use uh, new French oak as well. Uh, and have a few stainless steel tanks, but now we're we're we've outgrown that building. Mm. Uh, we really have, and so we're actually now putting in a new uh, outdoor tank pad, so where we can start u- utilizing outdoor tanks. Because um, you know, if you go to wine regions throughout the world, even if it's 100 degrees in the summer, they have outdoor tanks. It, it'll work. People automatically assume we're in Texas. There's no way you can store wine outside. Well, it is chilled. It's artific- The tanks are artificially chilled, but that way we can, we're going to start to be able to produce more uh, because our vineyard's growing. Um, so we're going to have outdoor tanks now here in a few years. So That still makes me nervous. <laughs> I know. I just, it's hard what to think it how that's going to work. Yeah, yeah, I hope the, the, yeah, the electricity turns off, that chiller turns off, and what are you going to do? Right, so. right. Um, and, and so do you sell, so now you keep all of your grapes for, for you. Uh, do you also uh, enjoy exploring other areas of Texas and, and purchase some grapes? Uh, that's a very common practice for folks who, they might have their home vineyard, but, you know, if you have a late frost or something and damage, you can still, you still have yeah. other contracts. So that's, that's a nice thing that's happening now. The fact that there are so many vineyards that are being planted that are being planted for the purpose of selling their grapes. Um, so when we, um, we're, we are 100% Texas, um, and we'll always be 100% Texas. We are about 80% estate grown, meaning from our vineyard. We would like to be 100%. Which is now 10 acres, you said? Yeah, approximately 10 acres. Um, Within the next few years, we hope to increase that by at least a few acres um, so we can be another step closer to being 100% estate. I'm thinking hopefully in five years or so, we can be 100% estate. So what that means is that we do have to buy some fruit. Now, uh, since we are 100% Texas, we tend to buy it out of the Lubbock area, the Texas Mm -hmm. High Plains. Uh, we've We've purchased some Roussan out there, which we no longer are because we have a very large planting of Roussan coming online. And uh, Tempranillo. <clears throat> Tempranillo is the only variety that we occasionally make into wine that we don't grow. 
Um, that will be our next planting, though. Yeah, very cool. Uh, that Roussan, let, let's talk a little bit about the about some of the particular wines. And if you're just tuning in, uh, we are talking with Grayson Davies, and you can f- you can see all of the info on his wines and winery at rkwines.com. Uh, briefly, with the whites, we mentioned Chardonnay, um, and uh, then you just mentioned Roussan, which I think is one of the most exciting Texas white Texas grapes kind of statewide, right? Yeah, what so are your impressions? Roussan was the first variety I ever made uh, back in, two, in 2010 when I started becoming winemaker. Uh, I loved it. It's uh, it's a really, really nice white wine. The reason why I personally liked it so much is I was actually always a red wine drinker. That's what I started. It is kind of white wine for red wine lovers, isn't that's it? That's exactly how, <laughs> how, that's exactly what we say. Yeah. That's exactly what we say. So uh, since I was always a red wine drinker, all of a sudden we had this white, this white wine that had a lot of body, a lot of, I mean, it has tannin structure in it, which, uh, you know, the compounds that give it its mouth feel. And so... You know, I, I actually make it similarly to a red wine in that I, you know, I crush the fruit, I macerate it for 24 hours before I press it off instead of just pressing the fruit off immediately to give it more body. Um, it loves the hot weather. Yeah. So it, it, it digs the hot weather. In fact, if you look up Drusan, you try to research, do some research on it. The research that's, that's done on it uh, when it's grown in, in cooler climates has a lot of negative things. You know, poor yields, inconsistent yields. Uh, well, that's not the case here in Texas. That's not the case if you're growing it in a hot climate. It's got great yields, uh, very consistent. It's done really, really well for us. Um, it's one of the first wines that we we really became very well known for. Right, and so we see. I would say maybe five to five to ten years ago, there was a, a Viognier boom, and everybody was kind of planting Viognier and thinking that was going to be the hallmark Texas white grape. And now, just in the last several years, at least in the marketplace, I see uh, more people getting more more excited about Roussan. So yeah, the thing about Roussan also is it it does really well with oak um, it ages really well um, it's not uncommon to see a Roussan that's 10 years old yeah. um, it's got a good got a good body so you can um, red wine drinkers can appreciate it white wine drinkers like it um, like Viognier I think Viognier has its uh, has its place for sure in fact Viognier Roussan they blend really well together uh, Viognier um, we actually grow a little Viognier, and we we use it for blending purposes. That we actually put it in with our Syrah. We like to do that traditional, you know, Cote Roti, right. Northern Rhone style, about five percent Viognier with the Syrah. And we also do it. We throw a little Marsan and Roussan in it, make it that Rhone White blend. Right. Uh, but Roussan, real big on it. It'll always be one of our uh, one of our namesakes for yeah. sure. Um, any other whites, you know, since you're not on the high plains and you're not in the, uh, in the, in the hill country, do you do any Blanc de Bois or any of those kind of, uh, native to the South part of the U S grapes? So Blanc de Bois, you know, personally, I like Blanc de Bois. Um, I, we won't ever grow it though. Right. Um, I don't make a Blanc de Bois. I just, I like the grape and I, I like, uh, like the wine that's being made from it. You know, it's one of the few French American hybrids that actually makes a good wine and it has its place. It it has its place because it's really, uh, it's very resistant to a disease called Pierce's disease, which affects basically everything, all the grapes, the wine grapes, south of Dallas and going towards the Gulf. 
Right. Um, so, you know, even in this area. And, but you're and out of that. You're out of that danger zone. We're out of that danger zone. Yeah. So, you know, we don't have to grow Blanc de Bois. You know, we can grow wine grapes, the vinifera varieties, and not have to worry about this, this disease. Um, I'll leave the Blanc de Bois uh, growing to the, the golf growers, sure. you know. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do like it, and I think it has its place, and I think it's here to stay. You're starting to see it, you know, um, on my end, you know, I'll enter wines into competitions, um, you know, throughout the country, and you're starting to see prestigious competitions starting to have, you know, categories for Blanc de Bois, which is very <laughs> cool. Yeah, that's a French-American hybrid. It's so. very cool. Okay, on the red sides, you've mentioned which grapes you, you grow, um, but then do you make some blends? Do you, do you like to feature anything as a single variety? What do you do on the red side? So... Uh, real big. I, I'm big on the blends. Um, the only single variety uh, reds that we do, we do a, a lot of Syrah. And even, you know, technically, I just told you that's actually 5% Viognier. Right. But uh, the we do do a little bit of Cabernet. Uh, but the, the majority of the Cabernet that we grow, um, you know, it actually goes into a blend we like to call Ryan's Red. Uh, after my middle brother, who, uh, my older brother, who's the middle brother, he actually passed away back in 05. And he single-handedly planted pretty much all the Syrah that we have, um, and a lot of the Cabernet as well. And so we make a blend with a Cabernet and Syrah called Ryan's Red, and then we do a, um, we do a Rhone blend um, of Syrah, Morvedre, Grenache, Carignan, and Roussan. So real big on the blends. Uh, you know, best wines in the world, in my opinion, are not going to be 100% anything. So. Right. Do um, and on this show we've talked a lot about uh, Morved and and Syrah. Also, uh, not from your neck of the woods, but you have a, a grape there that I'm interested in that you don't see all that much, and that's Carignan. Uh, can you talk about that? Is it was there? You know, that's a Southern French mm-hmm. wine as well. Uh, good with the heat, right? So our when we do our next planting, it'll be of uh, some Tempranillo, and then it will be a combination of Morvedre, Grenache, and Carignan. Because right now we have just very small plantings of those uh, of those three varieties. Carignan does really well. It produces a lot. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's particular to just our site or not, but it, it produces a lot. It gets, it gets very ripe as well. It adds, I think, a great character to that blend that I make with it. It will be a larger planting. Um, you know, I like the fact that we're, we're, we're Rhone heavy. I've said that before. And, you know, I'm, we're not trying to, the last thing you want, you want is to have like 58 different varieties growing in your vineyard. <laughs> right. And so we got lucky in that every variety that we've experimented with, um, has done really well. It's probably because we focused on, okay, where else is it hot? And, yeah. you know, it's Northern, uh, Southern France, Rhone. So, so. and well, so Carignan, uh, produces a lot. So that's not particular to Texas, uh, worldwide. I mean, it does produce a lot. In fact, you know, the, the, the jug wine that is, you know, red burgundy, uh, <laughs> actually is a heavy portion of, of Carignan. But what it does is, uh, when the vines are very old, that's when you start to see the yields drop. And so, you know, 40, 50 years from now, you have something to look forward to. Well, talk, talk to me, talk <laughs> yeah, to me in 50 years. Well, um, uh, Grace and Davies, we, we have to take a, one last short break and then we'll be back with our last segment. If you're just tuning in, Grace and Davies is winemaker and part of the family that owns RK Wines in, uh, in north of Dallas, about an hour north of Dallas in St. Joe. And uh, more information, rkwines.com. Uh, we're going to hear some final announcements and be back. Uh, and we're going to bring in Presley, uh, Grayson's fiance, for this the last segment here. So uh, stay tuned. 
People's Republic of Austin is a show for the working class of Central Texas. Join me, Brian, for discussions with organizers fighting for the rights of the oppressed and marginalized. We cover the struggle for workers' rights and power for the people. We cover real news from real perspectives as reported by the people most involved in struggles for social and economic justice. We also feature live music and talks on culture from underrepresented Austin artists. Join us in the fight with People's Republic of Austin every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. on KOOP. And you can also check us out online at facebook.com slash peoplesradioaustin, where you can find past episodes, extended interviews, and news about Central Texas. Support comes from RK Audiology, comprehensive hearing services for the Austin community, specializing in high-tech solutions for hearing loss, including made-for-iPhone and 24-7 devices, offering custom-fit earplugs for music, sports, and sleep. RK Audiology is located at 2003 South Lamar at West Mary Street. Online scheduling available at earloveaustin.com. All right, we're back. This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio. Uh, a lot going on here at the station. If uh, you're a longtime listener and uh, would love to to uh, give some blood in support of uh, of Co-op Radio, uh, for sure, go to koop.org for more information about that. I will definitely be in the Blood Mobile around two o'clock, um, and and really looking forward to that. So uh, we've got about five more minutes here. We're we're speaking with Grace and Davey who is winemaker of RK, and uh, his fiance is also in the studio. I didn't know that she was actually with a winery, and I didn't know she was coming, but Presley Whitehead, uh, who is part of the family that owns Blue Ostrich in the same neighborhood as RK there um, in St. Joe. So uh, welcome to the show, Presley. Hi, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's um, it's great to see this community, and in fact, you guys met uh, through the wine industry, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll, uh, let you, I'll let you tell story. So back in, I guess, 2012, um, our families were working a festival together. German Fest is in Munster, Texas, and we were going to rent a booth together, split the cost, and I'd never met Grayson. We'd heard each other's names floating around, never finally met until this festival. We were, you know, on the clock and splitting this booth (laughs) together, pouring wine, and obviously that's something we had in common. So... Just kind of went from there. Yeah, excellent. And and so you know that has to be just you know a romantic meeting, meeting over wine, and then you're the vineyard manager of Blue Ostrich. Yeah. So I mean, you guys get to you know hang out in vineyards and just sound so romantic. It is, I guess, (laughs) right? It's it's great having um, so many people in the industry uh, so close to where we are, and it's it's great having her family because both the families are are really close friends. Um, in fact, when, so they started in 2011 and when we heard that they were looking at starting a, a vineyard and, and a winery in the area, uh, we were all gung ho about it. We were great. We we're like, heck yeah, because, uh, the last thing we want to do is be the only people, right. you know, in, in town because there's more now that there, there was two of us, there's more of a reason for people to come out and, and now it's becoming a little wine trail. So it, it, it was great having them be yeah. out here. And then also the fact that 
we're uh, we're getting married. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Presley, tell us a little bit. You know, we only have a, have a few minutes. Sure. We'll hopefully have you back on the show at some point. Um, tell us how big your vineyard is and how much wine you make and what varieties you you really are excited about. Yeah. So we have an eight acre vineyard um, planted just on some family property. My grandfather came out to the Red River Valley in the '60s with his brother and purchased some land. Uh, we've ranched on there for years. We had an ostrich ranch at one point. That's where blue ostrich comes from. So uh, that's where we planted our vineyard in 2011. We have Tempranillo, Viognier, uh, some Cabernet Sauvignon, some Merlot. Um, So it's been really fun experimenting with all of those. Uh, We produce um, about 4,500 cases where we are and have a tasting room um, over there. So yeah, it's just we're part of that community now and really love it. So you you mentioned the what you're calling the the region of what encapsulates these wineries and where you are. What what was that and um, and tell us you know of course uh, there's a process to kind of make it official, right? Right. So we're in the Red River Valley, is what we call it. You drive on Highway 82 and it's just kind of like plains and flat. And you get north of the town, St. Joe, by about eight miles, and you see this tree line ahead of you, and you're like, what's that? And you drop (laughs) down this hill about 500 feet, and all of a sudden there's these rolling bluffs, and another three miles up the road is the Red River. We're right on the Oklahoma border. So that's our little valley over there. So about extending about 20 to 30 miles east and west, and then from the Red River just north of uh, St. Joe is this uh, very unique topography, these bluffs and rolling hills. And so in an AVA, um, American Viticulture Area, you can, a private individual can get, uh, can basically just get the paperwork and submit an AVA. Now they have to have a lot of evidence and reasoning behind it. So technically we are actually part of the Texoma AVA, uh, which extends about 150 miles, 200 miles east, west, so it's a uh, relatively large it's area. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And we actually, uh, we, we don't like the fact that we're, we're in the Texoma, so we're trying to actually get a new AVA um, designation. We are currently, you know, filling out the paperwork, and uh, hopefully we'll get that done so we can get our little area, which, you know, AVAs are meant to be, you know, grape-growing regions are meant to be very unique, very small. Right. They're not meant to encompass a million acres. Uh, because there are so many differences in the uh, soil type and, and topography and everything. So hopefully we'll get that done very soon. Well, guys, uh, we, we have run out of time. We have to pass the reins over to the People's Republic of Austin. Brian, uh, a new show to the Co-op Airwaves, if you're not familiar with it. Um, definitely stay tuned to Co-op Radio. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Pres- thank you very much. Presley Whitehead, who is a vineyard manager of Blue Ostrich, and Grayson Davies, who is winemaker of RK. And if you've missed this episode or any part of this show or any previous episode, you can access the archive at koop.com. Org slash another bottle down, and uh, it's been a pleasure to be here with you guys. And I love talking about Texas wine. I love talking about good Texas wine and the the folks who are really pushing the bar. So thank you for uh, to Grayson and Presley for coming in the show. Um, wonderful. Well, uh, th- that does it for us today. My name is Mark Rayshop. This is another bottle down. Um, check out the Facebook page. I'm gonna post some pictures with Grayson and Presley. Facebook.com/slash another bottle down radio. And uh, I'm going to post the calendar on the blog as well. So a lot of cool things, a lot of reasons to check out coop.org. We'll see you next week, folks.